There are a lot of well-meaning educational leaders who bring crisis management systems into their school or district, only to find that staff are afraid to use the procedures, use them incorrectly, use them too little, too often, or too late. If you want staff who are confident in their ability to prevent, de-escalate, and physically intervene at the right time, in the right way, then your school needs professional crisis management. Founded in 1981 by a behavior scientist, professional crisis management is the safest, most effective, and humane crisis management solution in the world. For more information, check out crisisintervention.com. Welcome to the Crisis in Education podcast, where educational leaders and experts across the world dissect the root causes of issues and explore potential opportunities for sustainable improvement across schools and districts. And now your co-hosts, Dr. Polly and Drew. All right, welcome to the Crisis in Education podcast. I am your co-host, Dr. Polly, and we're here with Drew. Drew, how you doing, brother? Doing well yourself. I'm good, man. I'm uh, just re- recovering. I was, you know, Drew and I just got back from the ABAI conference. And, uh, you know, for those who don't travel much, traveling is exhausting, man. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm still, and I came back with like, I had the hiccups for like a day and a half now. I don't know what's going on there. I'm like, do, do I have COVID or something, you know? And, and then I looked it up and there's like something that says like, there's this very small population of people who get hiccups. So now I'm paranoid. You know what I mean? I'm like, oh God. So I'm going to go actually test today at 2.15 just because I got it, man, you know, or something. I don't know, but I'm tired. How are you doing, man? Are you recovering? Uh, yeah. The plane was obviously delayed out of Boston. So uh, yeah, I've, uh, I think I've been home less than 24 hours now. <laughs> well, I was happy to see a bunch of friends and, uh, you know, learn a lot and share knowledge while we were there. So that was pretty cool, man. Um, but, you know, we're now we're here to continue sharing knowledge. I mean, this is the podcast where, you know, education meets behavior science. So uh, um, I'm really excited today uh, with our guests. I'm always excited about our guests, but there's some guests I'm just a little bit more excited about than others. And uh, we we have uh, Dr. Keith's story with us. And and uh, Keith, you don't know this uh, because you don't know me, uh, but you're book, uh, functional, you know, you, that you co-authored functional assessment and program development for problem behavior. That was my Bible. When I came in to, uh, begin working in schools, because the fact is I became certified and knew nothing about doing, I mean, relatively nothing about doing FBAs and BIPs in school settings. And so, uh, man, I dug into that thing. It was so helpful to me. I don't know what I would have done without it, honestly. So uh, um, thank you now for all the things that you did for me way back then and you didn't even know. And uh, well, thanks for being on the podcast, brother. Oh, sure. It's great to be with you. And thanks for your kind comments about the, the FA book. I appreciate it. Well, when I was looking at your background, I mean, it's uh, I was we were talking offline for a second and I'm like, well, I want to introduce you, Keith, but there's like I would be here for like ever. You you are a very accomplished behavior analyst and you've done a lot of research and um, you know, so uh, you know, I wouldn't even know where to start. So, you know, in this one, I mean, I know you're a professor, you know, you, you've been in the field for decades uh, and I don't know what you, you published. I, I don't know how many, how many publications do you have? Oh, a little over a hundred, maybe about 120, 130 
See, I was afraid. I was going to kind of. Because I'm old. I'm very old. <laughs> so, you know, if, you're, if you get a certain age, you, you know, you can look back and say, oh, I did a lot of things. But when you're younger, you're just starting out. So, you know, I spent six years as a classroom teacher myself and then got my Ph.D. at University of Oregon with Rob Horner and really learned a lot about uh, applied behavior analysis and positive behavior supports. That was a great learning experience for me. And there was a lot of brilliance that came out of that area. Um, I've, you know, followed a lot of, uh, do, you, do you know Randy Sprick and some of yeah. his work? Up there? I know, I know, I don't know him personally, but I certainly know his work. Yeah. He's got a lot of great work, man. The, you know, the only problem with his work is that it's just like, it needs to be a college class because it's so much like his champs book on uh, classroom management. It's really fantastic. Um, but it just, it's a lot. It's right. A lot, but it's helpful. Yeah. So um, what well, maybe can you, t- so how did you get into the field of uh, behavior analysis, if you don't mind sharing? Well, through, through special ed. So as a, a special ed teacher, I learned, uh, you know, about applied behavior analysis principles like task analysis and positive reinforcement. And then I did my master's degree at Southern Illinois University with Paul Bates. And Paul kind of clued me in on applied behavior analysis. And I took some courses in the ABA program there. And uh, I started reading Skinner on my own, and it's like, oh, this makes a lot of sense. And then did my PhD at University of Oregon and really, you know, a strong ABA program there. And um, kind of just, you know, it made sense to me. It's like functional assessment. It's like, well, why are students doing these strange things or undesirable behaviors once you you need to understand why they're doing them before you can come up with a good intervention so that was kind of the key thing in my educational uh background you know understanding the function of behavior you were uh like what richard fox coined as the natural behaviorist right he had a great great article on it uh translating the covenant that i love so much and uh, just makes sense uh, actually, to some people. I actually did a study with Richard Fox when I was at SIU. So, wow, you're going way back in time. Yeah, it's great, man. I mean, you, you, you've you been in the field for a long time. I mean, you know, I thought I was in the field for a little bit, but like not compared to you, man. <laughs> well, when you're my age, you'll have been in the field a very long time. There's a picture of you. You have, you know what? This is like your LinkedIn picture. You have, uh, and this is not, this is not, please don't take it as an insult. Like I look at people, when I rest my face, my mouth goes into like a frown, right? So uh, I don't know. I have like, what, what, what do you say? RDF. I'm not going to say that this is a, a rated G uh, um, uh, LinkedIn, but like you are a super nice guy. Um, and, you know, you have like a very authentic way about, you know, but when you look at your picture, like, oh man, this dude's a little bit scary. <laughs> Well, I'm very short and small, so in real life, I'm not that scary. <laughs> well, well, man, your your, your picture is intimidating, man. So uh, okay, so. good. I'm glad to hear that. No, no, man, you don't <laughs> want to be. You're a nice guy. You know, okay. I had to like I have to work around that. My son one day said, "Daddy, why do you look so mad all the time?" And I looked in the mirror, like when he happened to say it, and I'm like, "Man, I just do look like I'm pissed off." <laughs> and I was just like <laughs> in thought, you know that that's it. So I went right. Anyway, so um, you are the best type of behavior analyst to work in education because you get it from having worked in the classroom as a teacher. And so you can have empathy uh, for what, you know, educators are going through, uh, and especially because you came out of special ed. And that takes a very special type of individual to want to go into that setting. So I have a lot of respect for, you know, behavior analysts who were teachers. It's not that I don't have respect for behavior analysts who support education that were not teachers, but you just have 
you know, you can take it up a, another level, don't, don't you think? Or, you know, what are your thoughts? But yeah, you, you, if you spend time in the trenches, you know, if, if you're doing like in-home ABA services or, or whatever, you got to understand what it's like to be there on a daily basis and work with, you know, classroom assistants or families, you know, school staff who maybe have a different perspective than you or don't agree with you. It's like inclusion. Should students with disabilities be educated in general education classrooms? You know, it's a controversial topic, but you, if you're in there doing it, then you, you really, I think, get an understanding of what's happening on a day-to-day basis. Well, there was, um, th- it was well said, man, and I agree. Now, there was, when I first moved up into the area that I live now, um, and I first became surrounded by a couple of behavior analysts, I didn't, you know, I didn't have any formal mentoring uh coming up you know i was a slacker i didn't go to conferences and uh i was first introduced to school-wide pbs or positive behavior supports as it was called back then and i think it's pbis now uh, positive behavior supports and interventions um and uh, there was a controversy and uh, the controversy then was um that i guess and i could be totally way off base but i didn't care because i didn't you know i just like want a tool that helps people that's all i want and um the uh uh the, the what it was is that the field i think pbs was saying like their their own science or something along those lines i don't really remember and uh you know and they're trying to go in their own direction and aba was saying well no this is just aba and i'm like i don't care i like it there's a systems approach you know and then uh you know then there were behavior analysts that were getting mad at me because it was saying it's all antecedent strategies and they're like well no i just went and looked at some of the research and they are talking about some punishment here. You know, they're just talking about creating an environment that's going to be acceptable. And then, and then I was trained through USF on some things. I did find that, you know, through PBIS, um, that they didn't really teach you much about the punishment piece of it because there was this fear, at least through the people that were training it, that people were going to glom onto those strategies and now use them and they would become very reinforcing to them, you know? So I just said a lot of stuff there, you know? Um, in terms of the field and the what I learned from it, you know, you were you. I, I think I you, what you're saying is it's very complicated, which <laughs> is very true. You know, education is complicated, and and positive behavior supports are are complicated. And in my mind, it doesn't matter if it's coming from an ABA field or if it's a separate field. It's like we got these schools and these students. We got to educate them the best we can, and let's just put the puzzle pieces together, you know, and see what we can do as far as building supports for students my, and teachers and families. My man, that is so well said. You just moved up 10 more notches on my, uh, <laughs> right. I don't call it whatever. I did. We just want to help people. Right. So how did you get into this and, you know, at what level were you? Cause I mean, it looks like you've done quite a bit of research in this area. Well, during my doctor program, I worked with Rob Horner and the, the team there, uh, Rob O'Neill and Bridget Flannery, Jeff Sprague, Rick Alban, uh, that was really looking at, you know, functions of behavior and developing positive behavior supports. And then George Sugai became part of the team, and he was looking at school-wide positive behavior supports, which really was an eye-opener for me. And uh, actually, George did his first study at a school my wife was teaching at. So I kind of had that uh, insight onto what was going on. And, and my wife and the other teachers there were very impressed with George and his ideas. And I think it really helped turn the school around and make it an even better school. I mean, it was a good one to start with, but it just became better and more uh, focused on 
what supports are effective for students. And then um, I became a professor and started teaching classes on positive behavior supports. And I saw the, the need for advanced behavior class that focused on school-wide positive behavior supports, as well as mental health issues in schools. Can you pause for a second there? What was the gap that George et al. were just trying to fill back then? I mean, there's still a gap, but you know, what was it that they said, you know what? This is going on. This is a problem. We need something else. Let's do this. There, there was two gaps, mainly. So the first gap was, what's the function of behavior? Because this was back in the mid-80s, you know, very long time ago. And most interventions were based upon topography. You know, so if a student, you know, engages in severe self-injurious behavior, you do this. If a student elopes out of the school, you do this. Rather than why are they doing it? So what Rob and the, the team was great at focusing in on, what's the function? There's two functions. First one is to escape or avoid from something. And the second function is to get or obtain something. So once you understand the function of behavior, then it leads you down the path of what's an appropriate intervention for that student in that situation. If you don't know the function, you're just hit and miss. You know, you may get lucky, what you do may work, but it's likely not to work. You know, it's kind of a 50-50 shot at best. But once you know the function, it makes it so much easier to come up with an effective intervention that's positive and is focused on antecedent basis on teaching skills that serve the same function. So if a student engages in, you know, uh, self-injurious behavior to get attention, well, then you would teach uh, that student how to get attention in a positive way so they don't have to engage in the self-injurious behavior. So that was kind of the first big thing. The second big thing that George and Rob really put together was we got to look at this from a system standpoint, especially in schools. You know, you talked earlier about OBM, your interest in that. It's like, well, there are all these puzzle pieces to put together. The principal, the schools, teachers, the staff, the families, the students, we got to put it all together into a system that's positive and really looks at the whole school, not just a student or a classroom. So I think those are, those are the two things that really came together and have really had a positive impact on schools. And also George and Rob are great researchers. So there's a lot of empirical evidence that you know, these strategies are very effective and they've really outlined how you do it on an empirical basis. So we talked about evidence-based strategies, you know, positive behavior sports and school-wide positive behavior sports are definitely evidence-based practices. Yeah, I I love the work. Um, in fact, uh, I was inadvertently uh, introduced to OBM uh, through PBS, and uh, what I because I was with the first school I went into that was like in crisis, and they asked me to turn it around. It was very it was a mess, and the school had been trained in PBS, and I'm like, well, I don't you know it wasn't working, but it's, it can't not work. You know, it can't not work. But the problem was that it was you know, it was missing a loop, right? I'm going to come back to that in a second. So I said, well, I kind of think that they need PBS for adults, you know? And somebody said, well, there is something like that. It's called organizational behavior management. And that's what I, I read Aubrey Daniels book, bringing out the best and people I'm like, all right, this kind of sounds that's a like, great book. Yeah. 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 It sounds like, you know, ABA and it sounds like what we're doing, you know, with the PBS and uh, you know, so we, I put in another loop there, you know, it's like if, if, if the school leader's not on board, PBS is not going to work, you know, because the leadership's got to be like the leveraging the reinforcement and looking at the data and, you know, 
shaping staff behavior to ensure that it is effective. That's my, been my experience for it. But I saw that what they did with PBS, I'm like, I saw very little research cited out of uh, related to OBM. And I thought, this looks just like it's like OBM. In fact, I think the field of OBM could borrow from what PBS did because there were so many like tools that could be easily generalizable outside of uh, education. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 again, it's putting all the puzzle pieces together to build supports for people there. And you touched upon a really important thing, which is you got to change the adult behavior in classrooms and schools where, you know, if I'm brought in as a consultant or I'm working with a teacher, I'm pretty upfront. It's like, I'm here to change your behavior and in changing your behavior will change the behavior of students. That, that is my tagline. And that's when I'm consulting with schools, that's one of the first things I say, but I, I lead them that way. I don't just come right out. If I don't I have a short amount of time to do, but thankfully I have like a presentation I can do. And then I start asking them about, you know, Hey, there were two classrooms, a tale of two classrooms, one classroom or no, the, the, the one classroom was led by this teacher and it had all sorts of problems and the teacher ended up quitting. You know, the, a new teacher came in and all of a sudden the problems magically disappeared. Whose behavior changed, you know? Right. Yeah. To make that happen. Like, well, the adult, you know, and they agree with that. And same thing with schools. Hey, we turned around schools and a new leader came in and the other leader was failing. It was one grade group removed because it was the next year, but who ultimately was the first behavior to change, you know, and like with school leaders, yeah, it's the adults in the building that got to, you know, make the changes there. And, um, you know, what, it, what has been your experience with that, with getting the, the school leaders on board with PBS? Is it like what I'm suspecting in my experience that if they're not on board, it doesn't work? Yeah. Yeah. You're yeah. absolutely right. You know, you have to have the, the leadership, the school principal, uh, superintendent or whoever, you know, is at the district level to support it. And I think one thing is you don't want it being viewed as coming from special ed. It's got to be a general ed uh, role to play. You know, it's like this is going to help all students. It's not going to just help students with disabilities. And, uh, you know, special ed can be there to help, but it's got to be coming from the general ed side of things. But then the problem is they don't necessarily know about school-wide positive behavior supports. And then you, you have to, you know, Rob and George talk about, well, you need like a year's lead time to really put the system in place to get it up and running. It's not something you can do, you know, after an hour in service and you got a week to put it in place. It takes time, but you need, the principal is the key person. And, you know, that, that they have to back it and really want it to work. And then they have to put a team together to make it happen. Yeah. And I thought, and I had been, I was actually a, a PBS coach. And so, um, I experienced that. So we know behaviorally that that reinforcement for a lot of people is way far away. You know what I mean? For a, a year ahead and putting in this system. So um, I actually did something. I did it accidentally at that same school. Uh, um, I had a, a, an issue, um, you know, uh, when I got dropped in, like, where am I going to start? It's a mess. You know, it's a huge school with lots of behavior problems. So selfishly, I decided I'm going to, you know, try to work on the arrival time. And, uh, you know, from when the kids get off the bus to where they're getting on and walking to the cafeteria. And uh, what I found was that I was able to shape that up with just some very simple principles, um, which did include a little bit of punishment, but just simply saying instead of if a kid's running, just saying stop and walk back. Right. A little bit of positive practice mm-hmm. there, you know, and within a week had that changed around. And what it did for me was, first of all, let me believe in myself. 
but it had other people believe in what I had to offer. And really what we were doing was everything that's outlined in PBS. And so they're more willing to buy in. And so my thought about PBS uh, in general was that the system is so big to put in. Why not start small? I wrote a book about it, uh, Keith. It's called Quick Wins. And it's about you know finding something that requires low response effort that produces a valued and visible outcome for the staff. And then they're going to be more likely to want to engage in those things, right? Instead of focusing on a whole classroom management, let's focus on one transition, you know? And so they're like, right. oh, well, this works. And now you're just still applying those same principles, you know, across the board eventually. Right. Yeah. You, you want to get some quick behavior change. I agree hundred percent with you and yeah. you can pick something that's simple, you know, well, you know, being on time is a, a, a simple behavior to focus in on. And you get that quick effect and people are like, okay, yeah, he knows what he's talking about. You know, we'll give him a bigger shot at, at doing more. You know, it's like in a classroom, you can focus in on the student who has the biggest challenging behaviors because you're going to probably get some positive response. And then it's like, you know, then they're like, okay, Keith knows what he's talking about, at least to a certain <laughs> degree, you know, so we can trust him a little bit and, you know, you know, it's like, well, Keith is the most obnoxious student we've got. So if he can make a positive impact on Keith, you know, maybe he can uh, do it with Paul or Drew, you know. What a, when you start to go in or maybe you've seen schools start to implement PBS or PBIS, a couple questions here. What do you think is the hardest for them to implement? And what do you think are the most common errors that they make while trying to implement PBIS? I think that they, they don't put the the reinforcement system in place with buy-in by teachers. So generally what you want is the first week or two of school, you want teachers giving out a lot of reinforcement. You know, if you have a token system, you know, it's usually based upon the mascot of the school. You know, if it's like a bear, it's bear bucks or whatever, you know. So you have to have a buy-in that, okay, every teacher and every staff person is going to give out a hundred bear bucks the first week of school. And so then you're, you've got them doing it. They, you know, they have to buy in. Okay. Everybody has to do this. And um, then, you know, students are getting reinforced, but also teachers and staff. And you want school staff doing this too, the janitor, the, you know, administrative assistant, whoever, you know, that you want them giving out the reinforcement. And then I think they start to see that, hey, when I do this, I'm getting a positive response from the students. It's not, you know, something stupid that I'm supposed to do. I'm actually seeing a change in student behavior. So I think that that's a critical thing to really put in place initially. I have a, I have a couple of things to say about that, because that is so important what you're saying. I want to put on my OBM lens here with this because it's like, it's everything. First two weeks of school are so important to set the year off correctly. And um, if we're going to get the, uh, the, the, and I think this was a gap in, in what the PBIS approach, and that is, um, you know, we need, we definitely need to get buy-in, but buy-in um, to get buy-in, like, you know, the three of us might go, you know, Drew's a salesperson. Drew can go somewhere and get buy-in better than I can. Right. So there's a sales pitch that has to be done, right? And we understand like some concepts of, uh, you know, say motivational interviewing or creating a want, you know, understanding how to inspire people, tell a story. That's important because if you understand what PBS has to offer, you're going to want it, but it's who's delivering that message, number one. 
Number two, that is if we want those staff to hand out these tokens for two weeks, then there's got to be something beyond the training because training is an antecedent strategy. It's meant to get their behavior going, but we have to follow up. We have to catch them giving out the the tokens, right? We got to make sure we're reinforcing them for doing it. And to your point, we need to get them to do well enough and long enough so they're seeing that it's producing a valued outcome. So that naturally occurring positive reinforcement with them will make them want to continue doing it. But it's like, you got to prime the pump and keep it going and then share that data with them, or hopefully they visibly see it's going to happen. And that was a major piece that was missing because, and maybe it's in the literature, but it wasn't being applied a lot because the teachers would go out there and, and do it for the first day, go to all their posts and, you know, teach the expectations. And they came up with a great plan. Um, and then, you know, a week later, things had kind of returned. Back right. To, you know, right. Yeah. You need that fidelity and you need to keep it happening initially and then throughout the school year. And you need, like you said, you need reinforcement systems for students, but also for teachers and staff. Yeah. 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 And I also found um, this is the other thing about, uh, about this. And this is not, again, I, I did my dissertation related to the PBS. I actually created a coding system. So <clears throat> office discipline referrals are the standard data collection to, you know, that people, you know, analyze to make sure, you know, for the, how interventions are going, when are we, where do we intervene, intervene, et cetera. And I think there can be very successful. I'm certain they are because the research supports it in schools that don't have a ton of behavior problems. When you start getting in schools that have like really high rates of behavior problems, the issue becomes that you're measuring the rate of people actually inputting those referrals, right? And so there's a response effort behind collecting that data, inputting them. And uh, what I found, Keith, and maybe it's not, you know, in the areas that were researched that you did research or in other places that um, I was getting about a 40 to 60% uh, return on that. And how did I know that? Well, I did a simple code system. That is when you call for assistance, uh, you know, in, in the schools that I was at, the teacher had to push the intercom button, call for help, and somebody responded that, that that call would go to the front desk person who was like a dispatcher. They would call for assistance. So I just had that person logged that data and we just coded it. You know, we had like three or four codes they put it in there. And so theoretically for every call for assistance that you have, you should have an office discipline referral, but we weren't, we were only getting about 40 to 60 for every hundred that was put out. So we were really able to improve that process with that because with uh, PBS, I think there was like a checklist and they say, you know, how, how well do you think you're doing this? But this gives a hard number. So that's one thing. The other thing was um, the token economy. I, I believe, and I've always believed this, uh, in the schools that I was at, again, I was in schools with very difficult behavior problems, lots of them, the Title I schools, plenty of plenty of issues, that the token economy was complex for a lot of people. And that the PBS was intended to like you know, antecedent strategies to build relationships, build pro-social behavior, you know, like let's just start with being nice and using behavior-specific praise and smiling at people and using non-contingent attention. The token economy started to become so complex that when they were meeting to look uh, at the data, it was all about what the reward system was going to be and how we're going to do this, that, and the other. And I'm not saying there was not a place for token economies. My thought is like, that's not going to work if you're not just engaging in these basic humanitarian, you know, behaviors, just smiling and, you know, behaviors that just build a little bit of relationships with the students. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, you bring up two really key points. First one is you need data and you need good data. If you're getting garbage, you know, it's garbage in, garbage out. So you have to have a system that's as simple as possible, but gives you data so you 
know what you're doing is working or not working. The second thing is you have to fit the intervention to the environment at the school site. So, you know, if, if it, token economy is going to be too complicated for staff and, and teachers, it's like, don't use it, you know, or simplify it so that it's, it's something that can be done with fidelity. And, um, you know, that, that they want to do and they can implement. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right about that. And there's almost like this, like dogma with it. I don't know that they just feel like you have to do all this stuff. I'm like, let's just shape the system. You know, let's just start yeah. with small and make a difference. Well, you want a team doing it and developing it. So, you know, you want teachers and staff and the principal, you know, building this over a year. It's like, okay, this is good. What's going to work in our school. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's not Keith or Drew or Paul coming in and telling us what to do. And, you know, it's like, well, who are you guys? We're not going to do it. It's us. We're, t- we're, we're telling ourselves we're going to do it. So, you know, it, it, you're going to get more buy-in if it's us doing it rather than an outsider telling you what to do. Yeah, there was so much good stuff of that built into the system. I don't want to, uh, for anybody listening, I don't want to like uh, people think like I'm knocking it at all. I love the system. There was so much great stuff built into it. And, you know, um, I wouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater because there was like 98% of it was like really good. I'm like, wow, that was smart. Oh, wow. That was smart. When I started to understand the OBM stuff, do you, I mean, did they pull on? I mean, they had to have pulled on OBM principles, although I don't yeah, see a I, lot yeah, of I it. Think I, again, this is something that's been developed over the last, you know, 40, 30, 40 years. And it's, it's evolved over time. So um, I think the OBM stuff really comes into play. But I just want to go back to another thing you brought up, which is, you know, being nice to people. And, uh, you know, it's like school should be fun. School should be exciting. You know, you're learning new things. It's like when I go into a classroom or school, I look around, are people having fun? You know, are they excited about what's going on? If they're not, we got to change it around so that, you know, but being nice to people is really important. It's like, you know, especially little kids. It's like, you, you want to be nice to them. They're, they're five, six years old and uh, you want it to be a fun environment for them. And for a lot of students, school is not fun. It's a very aversive place, but we want it to be a fun place where they're excited to go and they're learning relevant things. Yeah. I, God, do I agree with that? One of my passions is, you know, leadership and coaching, you know, I look at OBM as a DNA of those things. And um, I, I think that what I do is just, I try to reframe it for people so people can maybe have some empathy and like, Hey, what if your leader was, you know, catching you being bad, you know, or doing a, you know, one to five ratio of recognizing <laughs> something you did once, you know, good. And you know, everything you're doing bad. How would you feel about the person? Would you want to be around them? What happens the day that you don't see their car in the parking lot? Do you feel good about that? Like, yeah, we all do. We don't want that. And as you know, classroom leaders, you know, that's, that's how your students are going to feel about you. So if they don't have a choice to not come in, although we don't necessarily have that, we, we could make the choice, but now they're forced to do it. Or Matt, what if your leader embarrassed you one time in a setting where they called you out because you were on your phone or something like that. And they, they, you know, they punished you publicly. How would you feel about that leader? Would you be learning? Would you be, you know, would you be thinking about what they're teaching you at that moment? No, you're like cussing them out in your mind. And now they become averse with you and everybody else. And so like, you know, having them feel it, I think it's really important because we forget like kids aren't second class citizens. You know what I mean? They're little people. Right. That's what we're there for. We're there for the students. It's let's help them out. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you can't make it about the students, though, without making it about the staff. And that's where that coming up the chain 
with the school leader making it about them and like we need pbs from the very top from the district you know from everybody that superintendent needs, everybody needs supports it's positive behavior sports for students for teachers for staff for superintendents and families everybody needs support to be successful yeah yeah what are your thoughts about uh about the, the talk about i mentioned earlier about punishment um and the I use think, of it i well, we need to distinguish between punishment and aversives. Mm-hmm. So um, punishment is a presentation of a stimulus or event following a behavior that results in a decrease in the behavior in the future. And there's type one punishment, which gives and type two punishment, which takes away. So punishment in itself is, you know, not necessarily a bad thing, but we don't want to be doing interventions that are hurting people or, you know, doing, you know, electric shock or things like that. So, um, you know, Rob Horner had a great article in Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis, gosh, a number of years ago, that talks about punishment as part of life. And people need to understand punishment and be able to deal with it. But if you're going to do punishment, you really have to have the positive reinforcement systems in place. And if those are in place and you're building skills, just very mild punishment procedures like a very mild response cost is going to be very effective. So the stronger your reinforcement is, the less punishment you have to use. It's like if you use the good behavior game in classrooms, which I really recommend. If you want to look up some great research, look at the good behavior game. And um, in that, you can incorporate some response cost things that are very effective because you've got this really strong positive reinforcement system in place and this building skills for students. So I'm not against punishment per se. So if, you know, students, you know, tapping their, their pen and you say, Hey, please don't do that. And they stop. Well, you've just punished that behavior, but you've not done it in an aversive way. Uh, you just, you laid that out. I, you know, when you say it the way you just said it, I, I have another book called quick responses really about how to use, you know, punishment effectively. Um, but the words you said are almost identical to the words I said. So it makes me really think that you probably said the words and I just read your stuff. I remember <laughs> doing it because it was so close. Stuff. I'm like, yeah. wait a second. That's what I said. And I'm, not, I'm, I'm certain you're not reading my stuff and quoting me. I'm like, somehow from all the work that you guys have done, it's like come out of me in this way because yeah, that's exactly right. But people don't seem to understand that piece. Like you have to have an environment that's rich with positive reinforcement. If you want the punishment, to work at any level, you know, you have to have that relationship with the kids. Otherwise you become aversive to people. And right. You if around. you're just using punishment, it's not going to work. You know, it it's may work, work in the you. short term, but you know, it's going to not work in the long term. Oh yeah. Kids are going to start behaving just to piss you off. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. What, what was your best experience with uh, PBS since you've been out working? Like what's your, you feel the best about, or like you've seen somebody else do that. You know what? This was amazing. Um, well, gosh, I'm trying to think of a specific case here. Um, well, I, uh, I was just involved uh, a few years ago with a student who engaged in very severe, challenging behaviors. He was destroying classrooms. Just amazing. He would climb bookcases and, you know, just clear those off and jump. He had great balance. He would jump from the bookcase to the table, to the chair, to the floor attack people and so on. And the way such we, a behavior analyst finding the strength in that he had great balance. <laughs> right. I know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's he very athletic, uh, very severely intellectually disabled. Um, 
And we just kind of built some systems in for him. It's like, okay, you do work, you know, and then you get a break, but the break is on our terms, but you're getting things that you like. And just kind of slowly shaping the amount of work that we expected from him. And he really uh, made great strides. You know, it was never easy. It was a very challenging situation. Um, but just seeing the strides that he made was really positive for me as a professional to see. And I think the staff, um, the school staff really hung in there with him. It would have been very easy to say, hey, we can't handle this extreme behavior at this school. But, you know, they, they did great. I, I should say some names, but I won't. Um, but some of the school staff were just great. And, uh, you know, no matter how out of control things got, they remained calm and positive. Well, that, that is wonderful to have that. I mean, I, I think educators are the backbone of our country and I think they should be being paid double, triple what they're making. Um, exactly. you know, I think we're yeah. not preparing them well enough. So, uh, thank goodness for people like them and thank goodness for people like you, because you had to give them that direction. And, uh, you know, certainly the way you behave towards them got them to want to engage in the, um, you know, in the intervention and, and push through the tough stuff. So well done. Uh, I think in a, in a way it, it, it gets back to showing respect to the student and the staff. It's like, well, if I understand why you're doing something, you know, why you're destroying the classroom, I can come up with a positive intervention, but I'm showing respect that you're doing it for a reason. It's not, you're not doing it because you're a bad person or something, you know, it's because you have a reinforcement history or a punishment history that's led you to do things this way, but I'm showing respect for you as a person and I'm here to help. Uh, That's a great, you know, yeah, it's actually, I mean, we were talking about Dr. Richard Fox earlier. I saw him speak in a, a FABA in the early 2000s. And what he said always stuck with me. And it goes along with what you're saying. Um, the best, the people who are best, and I'm paraphrasing here, the people who are best at modifying other people's behavior are the ones who treat it like the mafia. It's just business. It's nothing personal. And that has always stuck with me. And I try to get uh, the staff that I train to understand that, you know, you're not being aggressed against or being called names because it's personal. The kid or student doesn't hate you. It's because it's worked for them in the past. And once I was able to drill that into people's heads, uh, you would see a massive staff behavior change when it came to responding to those aversives to the staff. Yeah. It's not like, you know, the students attacking me because he hates me, you know, it's just, he's doing it for a reason. And once I understand the reason it's, it's not me. Well, I mean, it could be me cause I'm doing things wrong, but you know, it's not me as a person, you know, it's me, the behavior that I'm doing is incorrect in that situation. Yeah. That was, um, uh, so let me, uh, Keith, I'm wondering, you know, it's the good stuff, but what's been your biggest challenge uh, in the field with, you know, getting PBIS uh, into schools or, you know, something related to that area? Well, I, I think with the pandemic, I see a lot of students who have developmental health issues related to online learning and being out of school. And so I think that's been a really <laughs> big impact. And I think it's, A lot of people don't like applied behavior analysis because of the the terms and the way we use use words like positive reinforcement or negative reinforcement that don't make a lot of sense to them. So, you know, if we're using terms like be nice, you know, say positive things, you know, and get away from some of the ABA terminology, they're more likely to accept it. And then we also have to deal with there's a lot of prejudice towards students and people with disabilities. 
And the, you know, a lot of teachers don't want students with disabilities in their school or in their classroom. And, uh, you know, we talk about, you know, racial prejudice or gender prejudice, things like that. But there is a lot of prejudice towards people with disabilities. And I think we need to be upfront about that and call people out. It's like, hey, you don't want Keith in your class because he has a disability. It's not because, you know, Keith is obnoxious. You have other obnoxious students in your class, but you don't care because they don't have a disability. So I think that's an issue that we, we need to be more upfront about. That's a really good point, man. And you're not hearing much about that. And I, you know, I've thought about that a bit. I'm like, what the heck could they do? You know, like I'm not, I'm, I cannot stand educational uh, performance evaluations. I think they're crap. I think they're like sinking the, uh, the field because they take so much time to do. Everybody hates them. Uh, and the time would be better off served. Like, you know, just using some, you know, simple coaching, you know, rooted in behavioral coaching, rooted in uh, OBM. But um, I think with, um, with this piece of it, they have this stuff called VAM scores. It's been a while since I looked at this, but if there was some sort of reinforcer tied to not just the school, because I know schools get like lots of money for having a special needs student, you know, but there would have to be some sort of re, re, <clears throat> excuse me, reinforcer tied in for the teacher. We can't all assume that, that, you know, helping a child with disabilities is everybody's reinforcer that we want it to be. You would think, you know, hope that educators coming in the field for that reason. But the fact is for a teacher who's struggling, you know, there's some research out called stages of concern. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but like if their head is underwater, it's like my fighter, if I train a fighter and Keith, I don't know if you know, I'm a professional mixed martial arts, you know, coach and former fighter uh, that they're not going to learn new repertoire. If they're taking a beating, right. They're going to fall back on old habits and the things that are going to keep them safe. And so, uh, you know, once they get to that point where they're feeling safer, then they're going to be more likely to engage in, in those, you know, those behaviors. Um, but, you know, it, there's got to be something we got to think about in terms of behavior principles. What is reinforcing for that teacher? And the teachers that are good, probably like you, Keith, w- w- are the ones that kind of get dumped on, uh, meaning like, you know, you get more of those kids. And, exactly. you know, yeah. <laughs> so you almost get punished for being good. You know, it's exactly. not that you don't love them. Yeah. 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 Yeah, but I, you know, I used to, when I was a professor, I used to teach uh, inclusion classes, and I would sometimes be appalled at the attitudes of the students who are becoming general ed teachers, but also sometimes the uh, students who are getting a special ed teaching credential towards, especially students who have more severe disabilities. Um, So I think we need to deal with it on a pre-service level as well as, you know, getting people to understand disability is part of culture and part of the mix, Mm -hmm. but you're, you're absolutely right. When you got the student in a classroom, you know, it's like Keith is obnoxious and Keith can be disruptive. We need to bring in supports for Keith, but we also need to bring in supports for the teacher and the other students in the class. And putting a one-on-one aid with Keith may not be the best solution. You know, we may need to look at co-teaching and other strategies, you know, mental health supports and so on. So just putting a one-on-one aid is not necessarily a good strategy. No, I've seen it create, I mean naturally it feels like it's right. Oh, I'm going to get an additional person here. If a parent, like, all right, I, my, my child is getting additional help, but you know, we know that that means it's more to fade out to uh, you know, what the natural environment would be. It become makes things, you know, a lot more challenging. Right. Um, but you often have students who have the most significant needs and need the best teaching possible. And we pair them with the person who's least likely to provide that support. 
because they're low paid, they're low trained, and so on. But I mean, there's some great aides out there. I don't want to knock aides in, in general. But Michael Gian Greco really talks a lot about this issue um, about we wouldn't tolerate for general ed students putting an untrained teacher in there, but we tolerate it for students with disabilities because we really disvalue students with disabilities. Yeah, that is, that is so true. Um, and, and the other issue is, and, and it's a true issue, but again, it's, that's a systems issue is that um, the sort of behavior analysts that are out there, I'm like, you guys need to focus on tier one. You need to understand what tier one is. You need to understand what classroom management is and, you know, the system that's in there, because the more you've, you know, the more you focus on that, the less likely you're going to have kids who have like really difficult needs. So because that would have already been taken care of with tier one. So when you do have a child who really has special needs, you can focus your energy there because it's not being sucked away in other places unnecessarily because when tier one's not functioning well, everything trickles down into special education. You know I mean? It's like a melted pool of ice cream and like, what do you do? There's just not enough resources to go around and the child right. suffers, the yeah. teacher suffers. If you get tier one supports in place through school-wide systems, you know, then you can really throw your supports and uh, time and effort into students with the most significant support needs. Because you got 80% of the students doing well, you know, now you can really focus on the students who need more support. Who came up? First of all, I love the tiered approach. Uh, I wrote something about it, um, about using it at the leadership level with adults um, a few years ago. Now, maybe somebody had beat me to the punch, but I'm seeing like it's like a thing now where they're saying you need to do like tiered coaching for people, you know, which is wonderful. Who came up with that approach? Because it's brilliant for like leveraging resources. I love it. It's probably George Sagai and Rob Horner. They came up with everything. So, <laughs> yeah, well, not everything, but everything in this area. I mean, they've yeah. been the, the leading research gurus and, and really uh, put showing how to put systems in place. So it's probably George and Rob. Yeah, it just makes some good sense. So, um, well, listen, Keith, uh, it's, man, you're a super authentic individual um, and accomplished in the field and, uh, it's been a real treat to have you on here. Um, is there anybody you want to give a shout out? Is there people, how can they follow you? Is there a book you want to, you know, um, them to? Oh gosh, I, I can definitely do a plug. here. I just happen to have some books here. Good. So here's one positive behavior sports and classrooms in school that me call post. And I did. Um, we also have a book on positive behavior sports for adults with disabilities. Oh, look at that. Um, That's fantastic. Yeah. And um, then the functional assessment book that you mentioned, it's now in its third edition. Uh, and um, then I also have a book, Case Studies and Positive Behavior Supports in Classrooms and Schools. So um, I have an Instagram account. I have a YouTube channel. Uh, you can follow me on Amazon. Um, just you can email me at keith.story at tu.edu. Um, yeah, I'm here to help and uh, listen, you folks. Know, hopefully find my work helpful. But behavior analysts, if you're listening to this, I'm telling you, we, I, I, some of the greatest relationships I've ever had where I just like cold message somebody said, I saw your work. I love it so much. And guys like Keith are so humble. And uh, man, I, I bet that, you know, he could really point you guys in, in the right direction. I would encourage you to pick up his work 
and uh, reach out to them if you can. Yeah, least- and, you know, I keep mentioning George Sagai and Rob Horner. So go on ResearchGate or Academia and look up their research. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of great people, Glenn Dunlap, Lisa Fox, and others who do work in this area. So there's a ton of research out there to, to read through. Saturday nights, you know, what could be more exciting than reading journal articles? Full <laughs> of statistics and jargon. <laughs> All right, Keith. Uh, thanks a lot for uh, coming on with us and uh, just hang on for a second. I'll talk to you off there. Okay. Okay. Thanks.